Welcome to Payne on Politics, a podcast where host Dr. Gregory Payne of Emerson College sits down with fellow experts to discuss the current state of politics, public opinion, and global affairs. In a world growing increasingly complex, communication and critical thinking is key. This only makes the Emerson motto, expression, necessary to evolution. Hello, this is Gregory Payne, the Chair of Communication Studies, Co-Director of the Center for Global Communication with Blankerna, here for another edition of Payne on Politics with one of my favorite colleagues, America's favorite pollster, one day after the election. Spencer Kimball, what did we learn from Election Day 2023? Oh, so uh, the off-year election. Um, the big race was Kentucky in the governor's race. Bashir gets reelected. I think the good news for Bashir is that he wins strongly in Lexington and Louisville, where he won last time two to one. This time he won with over 70%. So those are younger minority votes that the Democrats were very worried about losing. They were able to keep them. Down in Mississippi, Presley actually ran a, a pretty competitive race. This is Elvis's relative, way yeah, back. Yeah, the king lives. Uh, not, not singing a strong but, enough song. But not long enough. Yes. I, still, I think he's going to fall five points short, but it, which is similar to how Reeves won his last election in 2019. But it shows that kind of things are baked in. So as much as we hear the noise out there, it seems like they kind of went as we expected them. Uh, Ohio had the abortion issue and marijuana on the question, on the ballot, which I thought was interesting because those are two big issues for Democrats to come out. Right. And they won both of them by almost the same percentage. It was Did like, that surprise you? Well, abortion and marijuana. So the right to an abortion or marijuana for... Those over 21 both got 57%. That was surprising because it's like two different issues, but they got the same percent of the vote. Now, more people voted on the abortion issue than the marijuana issue, but those who voted ended up breaking. In fact, maybe more people voted to legalize marijuana more so than the abortion. But anyway, you cut it. It's Ohio. It's a state that's a right. plus eight Republican. So that does give Sherrod Brown some, some hope. The problem that Brown now has is that that's off the ballot. So it would have been better to have the abortion question or the marijuana question on the ballot right. in 24, because now it's kind of settled. Right. From your perspective, I know in other polls that I've seen, you and others do, uh, abortion seems to be down the list in terms of importance, but yet it seems to be a motivator in these off-year uh, off elections. What? How do you read that as a pollster? So when we ask them, what's your most important issue, people are generally going to the economy. Republicans, three out of four are saying the economy. Independents, half are saying the economy. De Democrats, maybe a quarter say the economy. So that's their most important issue. But then there's a series of issues that they also care about. Education, environment, crime, immigration, abortion. So now we've got a whole list of issues. And when one of those kind of percolate up to the top, it doesn't necessarily supplant the economy. But it puts it into their mind, hey, I've got something else to vote for at this election. And it seems, certainly from the midterm elections and now in these elections, that the abortion issue uh, is a positive for the Democrats to help drive out that younger vote who doesn't seem to be so excited about a Biden administration. So, Spencer, Governor Yunkin has been someone that many people say is an up and rising Republican. I saw that he was campaigning hard, hoping to be able to capture both of the uh, both houses, and yet fell short. What's your thoughts on that? Uh, I think that was a mistake by Youngkin to throw that out there. 
uh, it would have been better to stay under the radar. And then if you happen to take both houses, now you come in on the, the white horse and right. I'm your savior. Instead, he was kind of hinting even last week that that was like part of his scheme for 24. So I don't think he played his hand well there um, and obviously didn't win. Uh, I think he lost both. So that, that's going to set him back. Uh, you know, in Virginia, you're only one term. You're term limited. So he's going to run for something else afterwards. But, um, you know, in the long game, he'll be fine for 28. Mm -hmm. But it would have been interesting if that had gone another direction. But at this point now, you know, yesterday's news. So I'm wondering, as you look at 2024, Virginia, of course, has gone Democratic. Do you see yesterday as sort of good news for the Democrats if we're looking at the presidential race? Yeah, I mean... It seems that it looks a lot like it did in the midterms and a lot like it did in 2020. And both of those are strong years for the Democrats. So right. uh, that would make me feel good. My concern is obviously at the top of the ticket in driving out that vote because the alternative is something to also keep in mind. So, yeah, it looks good. And, and you know, if Biden is able to get some momentum. And, but if he doesn't, you know, there's most likely the Senate's going to flip. The House likely flips back to the Dems. So you might get a split Congress, but if you don't, uh, you see who becomes the president. So there's a lot at stake, obviously, in the, in the months to come. Well, you know, many people, of course, are tired of both of these candidates. But if we go back to Kentucky, what do you say about the Democratic governor in a red state? I mean, what do you see with regard to potentially his future in the Democratic Party? Well, I think uh, he, along with others uh, who can win in Republican states, but the problem is when you win in a Republican state, you generally trend a little bit more moderate, which would hurt you in a primary. And so to get the nomination for a party, you ch tend to have to lean into your party positions. Uh, we don't have to look any further than here in Massachusetts, where you have Charlie Baker, a very popular governor. He couldn't even run for re-election in the state because he was being challenged by a, a more conservative Republican who was going to give him at least a, a battle for the nomination. So better to step out. And uh, same thing with Bashir. He might find himself a little too moderate for where the base of the party is to win a nominating contest. But I think from an electability standpoint, he would be able to make the case. Because remember, most likely in 2028, we've got an open seat. So everything's happening right now. There's Trump, Biden, there's other horses. But in 28, Regardless of what happens, it's likely an open seat. Okay, we spoke the other day at Pizza and Politics, you and Camille, as well as... Uh, the one at uh, Emerson or the one at Harvard? Uh, well, okay, that's interesting for those people listening. Harvard, the uh, place across the river, which, of course, when the sun comes up, it's in Emerson's shadow. We don't talk about the afternoon. Suddenly started Pizza and Politics. I'm talking about Emerson. You were here, and we were talking about the Siena New York Times uh, poll. And I know you're good friends with the Siena person. I've seen you at Napor. What is your take on that? This caused a lot of problems with people when they looked at the swing states. Um, so what's interesting with uh, Don Levy is the yes. director there. And uh, we did a study together last year. I think year. we met him at the... At yeah, yeah. He was at Napor. Right. Um, and we had a chance to work together uh, looking at different modes of data. So we've worked together. Um, what's interesting is that you've seen his poll, those six states... We also did those six states, yes. and that's getting released tomorrow. Can you give us a, a um, tidbit, since this will not be on until after Yeah, so that. yeah, when you see the two polls, you'll notice that they're pretty similar. Uh, they show, you know, I think Michigan, we have maybe Biden up by a point or two, 
And in Wisconsin, I think they have Biden up by a point or two and then vice versa with Trump. Right. Right. Uh, the biggest discrepancy was probably out in Nevada where they had Biden up by, or Trump up by 11 and we had it between three and five. Um, and the difference between our two sets of polls, remember these are six states that we get to look at, is in the youth vote. So they have the youth vote, the 18 to 29 vote, breaking by one point for Biden. And we have it breaking by like eight or nine points for Biden. Generally, Biden would win that vote two to one. So either poll is telling you that there's a problem with this youth vote. On the flip side, those over 65 are closing in for Biden. So the older vote likes Biden. And so that's now how much of the older vote can offset the younger vote is going to be a, a question at, at play. But that's where we're, look, we're looking at. Um, and so that's kind of the discrepancies. And then you've got the middle group, the, the 40 to 59, 50 to 69. Those are core Trump voters. I think today there was a poll also by Monmouth, again, friends you know. And they came out and basically said since both, both of these candidates are disliked by many, many people, that everyone would like to have an alternative, that it really would be who do you dislike the most and you sort of vote not so much because you like the person but because you hate the other. Your thoughts on that? Do you think that's going to be an important dynamic next year? So we had the chance uh, in this study, the six-state study, uh, to look at some of Judy Trent, remember? Ideal Dr. candidate, Trent? yes. Uh, the ideal candidate. and We miss her. And we used some of her questions in that, in that study. And um, one of the questions we asked was, what's your motivation for voting for the candidate? So we asked the Trump voters, what motivated you? Was it because of Trump or is it because, you know, you're voting against Biden? And we asked the Biden voters the same thing. The Biden voters, two to one, are voting for Biden because they don't like Trump. So the motivation for the general Biden voter is Donald Trump. For the Trump voter, their motivation is more because they like Trump. It's not, they don't like Biden, don't get me wrong. They don't, but they're not necessarily voting on that. They're voting it on that they like Trump. So to your earlier point, it's not that they both dislike. There's a lot of people that like Trump out there. There's not as many people that like Biden. And for Biden, it's good to have Trump as the nemesis. But for Trump, he's bringing out his vote. There's some anti-Biden vote, but that's really just coming from the pro-Trump. So it's an interesting little you know, motivational look into what's driving these voters. So from your perspective, I know there's dissatisfaction. Many people say Biden should drop out. I think you and I know if we look at history, it's difficult to find times like this where someone drops out. Your belief at this point is that it still will be Biden and Trump next year. Yes, yes, yes. And, it, and that's been the belief really since uh, November of 2020, that Trump was going to come back. You know, he was dismissed right out of it. You got January 6th. They said, okay, that's the end of Trump. Couldn't be anything further from the truth. Uh, this guy has not left the arena. And so I expect that to stay. Uh, with that said, who is this, you know, this alternative to, to Biden um, on the Democratic side? You know, Demo how did they get to Biden in 2020? Was it that he was this, this shining new star that they were all? No, he was the, 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 the known commodity. For better or worse, he was the known. So you got the same thing. Um, you know, I, this still feels to me, and I wasn't around, but from my studying of the Truman-Dewey election, where Truman had, you know, remember Truman hadn't been elected before. 
he comes in on FDR's ticket right. um, and then has to go up for election. And people don't like him. And they don't like him. In the polling, they stopped doing the polling in September of that year, and they said it's over, only to find out that it wasn't over. Um, of course, that, Truman, the headline that said, you know, Dewey wins, that was a good, good example. Of uh, the Chicago Tribune. Yes. Um, and we'll see. I think there's so much time ahead. And again, there's movement within these numbers. You know, obviously, you'd like to see if you're Biden to be in a stronger position, but he doesn't run from, you know, in 2020, he didn't run from the front as a front runner in the primary. He was in the back of, you know, he was a front runner, fell into the pack, then took the race. So I expect him to be strategic. I just don't see who the alternative is, and you're running out of time to create an alternative. Okay, one question I'd like to ask you, Spencer, one thing that's clear with me, we've been friends for you know, almost two decades, and you've taken a program, which David, of course, began with a program here and did a course. You've studied with David Paleologus, good colleague over at Suffolk. You've taken this to where it is a national and an international brand. Can you give us a bit of, uh, just a little synopsis of the history of that and where you would like to go, as well as how many polls have you done since the summer? And you're on sabbatical, which is a good thing in some ways because you get to do your passion, but a bad thing for me because we have everybody wanting to study with Spencer. So can you give us a little bit of a synopsis of the history as well as where Emerson polling is going? Well, as you mentioned, uh, Dave Paleologus, uh, our friend and colleague over at Suffolk University, um, down in the Suffolk USA Today poll, started, you know, the, he had the idea that maybe Emerson should get into this space. Um, I ended up studying with Dave over at Suffolk uh, when Emerson decided not to move the program forward. And uh, from there, I uh, kind of pitched it back in 2013 to the college. And we used it just as a classroom exercise um, that quickly built uh, into what you mentioned. Um, I think last month I did, in October, maybe like 51, 52 polls. We did it in 23 countries. So. Um, we get to do a lot of work, we get to study a lot of public opinion, and it's just been an awesome experience to gain knowledge. Yes. So like, we learn about methods, and the students get an unbelievable opportunity to get their hands right into the data. It's not like it all comes to them, they see the raw data, you know, they see how the sausage is made, and they learn, maybe I don't like to make sausage, or hey, this is what I want to do, and, they, and it's not like a surprise when they go into the field. They say, oh, I've been trained in this. So uh, that's, I think, the, the immersive part of the program for the student perspective, where they do get the hands-on opportunity to, to work and study with us and uh, be part of it. Well, you know, I remember, uh, I think both of us were at a faculty meeting where we really weren't quite sure where the department was going as well as polling. And I think all of us had this dream and idea forward. You've taken it to a point where... We take students to Iowa, we take students to all these different places. We, of course, have Professor Thompson, some of her colleagues and others. Uh, Linda Peak Shack has been working. From your perspective, and I guess I'm amazed because, again, you're a very dear friend, and I've worked in campaigns for many, many years, edited the ABS on political campaigns. You've got a very small staff, and yet you expose all these students to the dynamics, as you said, of Spencer polling and sausage making. What is it that you're able to do and let these kids actually crunch the numbers, come up with questions? How are you able to do that on such a, I would say, sort of in need of more people, but you still are able to get it out there? 
Uh, it's just how it gets done. I think, Your passion. Yeah, I think we've just, we've always been a lean machine, and so there's no difference. And I think the other is that I got a lot of confidence in these students. Remember, I'm coming from the campaign world where I've worked with 18 to 21-year-olds. And, you know, if you're 18 to 22 or 21, you're working on these campaigns, and you got some real responsibility. And I saw that. And I saw a lot of students or a lot of these younger adults who were worked at, like, they're capable of doing this work. They're just not being taught it. And so here we have a program where the students are learning in class, and then we can pull them out and actually conduct this research. And then they're going out and getting jobs in the field. And that's how the program grows, is that there's continuity. And then the alums come back and they help out the new group of students coming in. And you know, having now done it for over a decade, we now have, you know, we, we're not the mafia, but we're, we're growing a uh, Emerson Alumni Network. Well, I think you have quite a brand out there. I mean, it's one where my Aunt Jean back in Benton, Illinois, watches you on RFD TV because you go you go very local. You've got real clear politics. You know, plans for a DC piece, which I think is exciting. One thing I remember distinctly about the experience, though, is when we were in Iowa and you were crunching data and we were talking to Brent Winterbull, who, of course, is part of the Emerson Poli Mafia, political com mafia. And, of course, he's worked with Rush Limbaugh. And we had Connor Dane and some of the students in the back, and you'd crunch numbers all night. Uh, this is not a, you know, a VIP luxury tour. You're there eat, sleeping, and breathing politics. And yet when Brent said, okay, let's summarize this, you immediately said to Connor, okay, you've got the data to summarize it. So here's a kid, I think he was a sophomore or junior, and he's talking to all of San Diego and Southern California about your poll. Where else can you get an experiential, immersive experience like that? Well, that's the reason why we created the program, is that that's what I was looking for when I was really in grad school, and the closest thing I found was Suffolk. Uh, but uh, ours, and, and Suffolk's a good program, you know, our friends across the common. Right. But uh, I, I gotta say, I'm a little biased. I like the immersive opportunities. And then the, the exposure to even more groups, you know, APOR and, and other uh, organizations that students start to, their careers, um, start to network. You know, what I've really enjoyed is your leadership in A-Port and A-Port, et cetera. I know that uh, a cousin of mine, Bryce Harris, who does, or Bryce Summary, who of course is in St. Louis, does uh, gateway polling, is a big fan of yours. You take students to those conferences. This is a little bit different than the traditional communication conference. What do you think they get out of that when they present and see this incredible network of pollsters? I think the best is that they feel prepared. They're, they gain confidence because you sit in a classroom with a lot of talent and you think everybody knows this stuff. Yes. But then you go to the conference and you meet other undergrads or even some grad students and they're like, oh, you don't know how that works. And they think to them, wow, look what I'm learning. And so that's when it kind of connects some of those dots and the light bulbs go off where they realize they've got some skills and they can go into the arena and start working. I think what's exciting... Uh, as we look at today, though, one of your interns, uh, Chase Taylor, just ran a successful campaign in Marlboro, and uh, a former baseball player, you know, Trey, is now the council member from that. So what do you think Chase took away? I mean, he looked like he was grinning from ear to ear in his first campaign. Uh, it's not his first. Chase has got, uh, I think, Angus won last year as okay, well. Okay, that's right. I've heard so Angus. we've got uh, Chase is a veteran, and uh, that's the type of talent we have here. So... To me, we're not creating these stars. They're stars in themselves. We just might have to knock off a piece or two to get them to where they want to go. But there's a lot of talent. Uh, obviously, you see that in the admissions process. Um, but if you can get in, you get a lot of opportunity. 
Well, you know, the one thing, too, Spencer, even though we look and you, I know that you eat, sleep, and breathe politics, is you have a global relationship. During the pandemic, uh, we were doing some things with our sister school in Blancarna, and I think you expanded their knowledge of exactly what it would be like to get a good sample. You also have been working with a very good friend and colleague, Dr. Scott Radson, with Cooney in terms of some health issues. Of course, that's a favorite theme of, theme of President Bernhardt in health communication. Can you give some just a, a brief synopsis of what you're doing with Cooney? Because it's not just about politics. It's also about assessing public opinion on issues of health. So I think that question really opens up to a much bigger conversation of what I'm really doing. Because I'm not really doing pre-election polling, and I'm not doing health communication. What we're studying is the future of survey research, public yes. opinion research. Right. How do these samples get created? You know, what's a random sample? What's a probability sample? What's a non-probability? Who are these panels? Are these magic panels that can stay as probability panels for in perpetuity? Or is there a, a time limit on how long a panel can be representative? And so all of my research really is about panel composition, sample composition, modes of data collection. But nobody really finds that too interesting. When I apply it to the pre-election polling or to the health community, you know, when we're looking at COVID vaccination numbers and they're like, Spence, how do we reach people in Harlem? I say, well, you're not going to reach them calling them with live operators. If you send them a text message, they all have cell phones. You know, you're not going to reach them with an email. But if you go down to Florida, you'll reach them with an email. So each audience has a different way of reaching them. And so that's what I've had the opportunity for 20 years is to see the different ways that we communicate and try to measure. So even like social media sites, you might be getting a pop-up ad from Emerson Polling to take our survey because I know my audience is in these other places. And so as we continue to move forward and our forms of communication change, the program just continues to evolve because we've got to find the people where they're at to make sure we get these representative samples. So to come back to the, the point, uh, the question uh, at hand, yeah, you know, we can apply this to health communication where we were in Montgomery, Alabama to take a look to see if vaccination was going to change because of the election results. And we can be in different parts of the world um, because we understand how those samples are being created and how they're more representative. We make mistakes, but we learn from every poll, every survey is a learning opportunity. And I think from there, we've grown into a respectable organization. I think what's exciting to me as somebody who was chair for 10 years in the 90s and also this last, uh, since 2014, is to see someone like you so committed to what you're doing and not content to do with what everybody else is doing. I mean, you've been cutting edge. You've had some people attack your methodology because you're shaking it up. And to me, that's how you perfect, as you said, the panels as well as polling survey techniques. Your thoughts on being somewhat of a rebellious disruptor? I think I just bring industry into the academics and into the newsroom. I mean, 10 years ago, the idea of collecting data in any other way than what we're doing was preposterous. They wouldn't even run with the poll. They'd say, you can't collect it that way. And now they're all using the same methods that we're using. So in, you know, when you look back on history, at least at this point, we were on the right side of that methodological equation. Well, I think one thing that's exciting to me and one reason why I enjoy uh, being a chair is to be somebody with is working with someone like you. You're pushing the envelope. I know that we've got plans to potentially have some type of uh, bigger presence in D.C. We look forward to working with you on that. I think that Jay Bernhardt is at the right place at the right time to nurture those types of uh, energies that you have and others. 
And what I think Emerson Poling really represents better than anything I know is the essence of what Emerson's motto it is, and that is expression necessary to evolution. You've continued to evolve, and we're very, very proud that you're the bright and shining star in terms of Emerson branding. Thank you for coming on Paint on Politics. I look forward to having Spencer, one of the best pollsters around, back with us. Thank you again for having me. Take care.